Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is Mark Goodyear with one of a couple of special roundtable discussions to celebrate 100 editions of the world-renowned compilation series that sold more than 120 million copies since it first came out 35 years ago. Welcome to Now That's What I Call a Podcast. And joining me today for a natter about the Now series and how it survived and thrived to 100 editions, let's welcome journalist and cultural commentator Peter Robinson from Pop Justice. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Very good. On the line from Amsterdam, uh, music <laughs> consultant and journalist Lee Thompson. Hello, Lee. Hello, how are you doing? And last but absolutely not least, a lead vocalist with a much-loved group from Now History, who still sound great these days, from Swing Out Sister. Hello, Corinne Drury. Hello. Welcome. Now, we'll hear from Gabrielle and Paul Young and some other names in the Now Hall of Fame as we go, but let me start by taking you back to the early days of Now That's What I Call Music to talk about how the series developed over the years. Here's a lady who was a big part of Now in the late 1980s. It's Yaz. Now grew, didn't it? I think maybe in the beginning it was seen as a little bit, no, not as trendy. And it just grew as it grew with its artists. And it's great because that, some of the music and artists on these albums are so exceptional that each generation that listens to this music will be blessed, you know, to know about it. And the history keeps going on, really. So that's Yaz. Peter, the question is, there couldn't really have been a better time to start this series. The 80s for British music and what we were exporting to the world was an incredible time. Yeah, it was really big, and particularly with Virgin, who kicked the whole thing off. They, in the, in the months and the year before the first Now album, had had loads and loads and loads of UK hits. So I think the genesis of it was them having all these requests in, people asking to take their songs for other albums, and they decided to... Uh, to do their own. It was when it came to the subsequent albums that they thought, oh, we haven't had as many hits this quarter. What are we going to do? Bring some other people in. Yeah. Do you remember your first Now album? Now 11. Yeah. Which is which is the best Now album. <laughs> Everybody says that. <laughs> well, track, track one, side one. Always on my mind. Uh, Pet Shop Boys. Yes. Yeah. First yeah. record I played on my very first show on Radio 1. Really? Was, yeah. There's a memory. Corin, do you remember Now starting? And do you remember the first time you appeared on a Now album? Yeah, I can remember it starting, but probably we were busy and kind of in the underworld. We were kind of indie and we were kind of not really 
out there up front. So it, it was probably not part of our world. So I didn't take too much notice of it. I think you're happy with where you are. Andy had been in a certain ratio. Martin had been in magazine. I had been nowhere. I was a fashion designer before that. So listening to the pop charts wasn't kind of part of my world in the early 80s. I just used to listen to vintage Oxfam shop finds on vinyl. But then suddenly when we had the opportunity to be part of this, it felt like we had made it. You know, now that's what I call Music 8, I think, was when we turned up. And you're put alongside with other newer people coming into the charts, other newer bands, but also some quite established ones. So it's kind of, it gives you a little bit of a placement in a place that's maybe reserved for people who've been around a bit longer. We'd only had a couple of, you know, records in the charts at that point. So it was kind of really something to be established. On that record, you're as important as them, as the running order goes. And Lee, Lee Thompson, what was your first Now album? It was the first Now album, believe yeah. it or not. Now no, I believe it. Uh, it, I it would only it be the first Now album with you, of course. <laughs> so what do you remember about that coming out? Did you, did you know it was coming out? Were you such a big music fan that you knew you were going to get it? Or did, was, it, was it serendipitous? It was one of those ones where I, I, I obviously had just been bombarded by the TV advertising, which was everywhere. But I had been collecting a lot of the, the ones from the sort of previous couple of years. There'd been a big one two years earlier called Chart Hits 81. Uh, that was a KTL compilation. I remember Peter Powell advertising it uh, in his green jumpsuit. And um, there were a whole bunch of ones that followed that. And they were doing this whole kind of thing, um, buy one, uh, buy volume one, get volume two free was the, was, was the hook. So it was kind of the first time that, that these double albums uh, of uh, decent-sized hits had been kind of sort of put together like that. I remember there'd been a few that I'd, I'd bought because I'm a lot older than you might think, Mark. Um, there's a few that I bought during the 70s when I was a kid. I remember for my, um, for my ninth birthday, uh, I'd been given an album called Dance, Sing or Anything, which uh, was led by the, the Rod Stewart and the Faces track, roughly the same name. And that was, that was my ninth birthday in 1975. So that kind of carbon dates me. But also, it's, up to that point, a lot of the compilations that I'd bought before that had been the old Top of the Pops covers ones that you got in supermarkets for like, you know, one fifty nine or whatever it was. Uh, and um, this was the, the one that I got for my ninth birthday on Ronco kind of was one of the ones that made me go, oh, right, so these are original versions of songs, uh, whereas kind of before that there'd been lots of covers and things. But now, the first Now album in 83 with the TV advertising blitz, the beautiful gatefold sleeves that still kind of is, is a classic to this day. The sleeve notes as well, an important part of it, telling you about you know each of the tracks and all that kind of thing. That kind of just set the benchmark, and that was what then became the de facto compilation album that everybody had to have, I suppose. So, Peter, what do you think it is? It survived, you know, at least a couple of generations. Um, how how has it become a brand that's established so well that it's got got past all of these massive disruptive changes that the rest of the music business has had? Well, the, when you use the word brand there, you know, it is the brand. You know, if I was to put out a... Uh, an album called Peter's Massive Bangers Tomorrow, which had exactly the same track listing as the new Now album, then it would just 
stay on the shelves. The supermarkets probably wouldn't even take it. They'd be like, what is this nonsense? Even if it had exactly the same track listing. So you have to sort of look at the, you know, the familiarity of it. You look at the massive TV advertising, all that sort of stuff. But also the fact that I guess the, the, the nail brand is something that sort of has been passed down through generations in that a lot of people will sort of think of their parents having had it. And unlike a lot of music or musical entities that your parents are into, you don't immediately turn your back on it because usually it's reacting against either what your parents are into or what even what your older brother or sister is into. But with now, you know that it changes with you. So when you get to the age of 9, 10, 11, whenever it is, and the now nearest that birthday comes out, then that is something that is yours. And it isn't your parents, even though they may have had something earlier in the series. That's an interesting point, Corin. that um, we, we used to definitely not like the music our mums and dads liked. Um, but it does seem that nowadays, actually... I, I will go to a Faithless concert with my son uh, and I will go to a Prodigy concert with my son. We, it has changed, doesn't it, how we consume music and what we're prepared to continue to be interested in as we get a little, let's say, less young. Yeah, of, good, of a good vintage, I yeah. think you have to say. I think the gap shrunk a bit, although I did like the music that my parents liked and it was something to do with, uh, you know, the associations. My dad used to play in a band and my mum used to sing, but they were they didn't do it as a full-time thing, but my mum used to like Bessie Smith and Mahalia Jackson and a load of blues singers, which I didn't really check for. But then I read in The Enemy that Mark Boland loved the blues, so that was OK. <laughs> you find a way of coming around. But I think you're right. With this music, it's kind of, it's a collection. It's also like a historical collection now, you know, collectible from compilations from the past, it gives you a really good insight as to what was sitting side by side in the charts at any one time. I mean, when I was in my teens, you know, affordability came into it too. I would buy Motown chart busters and um, I fell for, as Lee said, the top of the pops and the um, <laughs> all those hot hits ones with hot pants yes. on the front yes. end. Yeah. And you kind of thought, oh, great, I'm getting all these songs for 99p. You said 59. I'm, I'm I may be thinking of a bit later on. But, yeah, um, I think it was about 159 I think it was. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. The, it, was, it was the price point. And I think that's a really, really interesting thing that, that not a lot of people pick up on these days. That if you look at uh, now, when it first came out, that album was 4.99 at the time yeah. when a single was about 129 So, actually, you're talking about only the cost of maybe four singles for 30 tracks on this huge double album. Of course it was going to sell, you know, half a million copies that Christmas and beyond. Yeah, it was so one of those things, yeah. Even if you consider yourself to be a connoisseur, it, you kind of could forget that because, hey, you're getting all of this. If you're DJing or you're playing mm. tracks at a party, you need some songs that everyone can listen to and appeal to all. It's all there in one go. Mm-hmm. The price point thing is really interesting if you think about what's happening in 2018 because previously you, for the price of five singles, could get you know, 32 or whatever. Now, a single, for most teenagers, the price point is zero pence. Mm-hmm. And the <laughs> compilation, which previously was value for money, cost 10 quid. So it's yeah. interesting to see how Now is developing its brand and how it's trying to compete. And I think, you know, a lot of the sales now, um, you know, they're to people of my age, slightly below, mostly older. Um, if you look at some of the data for it, especially around Christmas, like 60% of Now albums are bought as gifts for people. And most of the people they're bought as gifts for are teenagers. 
and you can sort of think the teenager will get this and they'll be like, great, what do I do with this? And then they'll go off to YouTube and probably listen to the tracks that are on it. Yeah. Um, or onto Spotify and listen to, you know, one of the top hits playlists, which has, you know, millions of subscribers and things. So it'd be really interesting to see in the next five years how the legacy that's been sort of handed down through generations, whether it hits a brick wall or not. Talking of generations, here's an artist who has her own personal proof of how now has spanned the generations. It's Gabrielle. They're great things to have. You know, my daughter, she's 15. You know, I've been known to have them. She'll nick them and they're in her room and she's playing me. I'm like, what do you know about this? So the bottom line is it's it's just a great thing. And I think, you know, 100 will get to like a thousand. You know, now will always be around, I hope, just because, you know, the music is always great. And, they, you know, they're just the hits from the times. They just put them on there and, you know, you're good to go. And Paul Young was on that very first edition in 1983 and he's still a fan. All we used to get before then was those horrible top of the pop things that were done by that were covers, you know, cheap covers. So this was the real deal because it was the original tracks, and um, it was nice to be able to get them all on one disc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So we, when we were kids, I think we all probably made cassettes for our playlists. We uh, we would put our... We made cassettes of you doing the chart. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, we did that because we wanted to have all our favourite singles. Nowadays, the kids are making their own playlists on digital services. Was now the very first playlist? It was kind of a precursor to Spotify, wasn't it? I mean, I think it was doing the Spotify thing before that came along. It was curating tracks. Yeah, but I think um, a few record companies, I wasn't sure if it's London Records, I remember buying a compilation called Now That's What I Call Soul, and it was all different soul artists on the London label. But that was a great way. There were quite a few of those around, original artists, but I think it was something done by record companies to showcase all of their new artists. It's interesting to think about how curated now was, because in a way I like the idea that it was just the biggest hits and there wasn't someone going, yeah, but this song isn't actually very good, is it? 
because a lot of the, a lot of the playlists now are simply you know are, are the best of what's around rather than everything that's around but i quite like the purity of now going if it was number one even if it's doctor in the tardis by the time lords it's going on next to all the other credible stuff not that the, the Time Lord single wasn't credible in its own way. <laughs> but credibility is another really interesting aspect of it because I don't think, because uh, there's the two types of credibility, aren't there? There's the credibility of tastemakers and people in fashionable areas of London. And then there's the credibility of a job well done and doing something well. And I think with, with the Now compilations, it may, they, they may not have been credible in the cool sense early on, but I think even people who are cool give it its dues as going, well, actually, no matter what happens to your musical taste later on in life, everyone sort of starts off or has started off historically, you know, with a Now album. And from that, you sort of figure out the sort of areas of music that you like because it has got a bit of everything. The other thing about uh, Now, and I hadn't thought about this until we started talking about it for these podcasts and for this Now 100 anniversary, but, you know, what you're saying is about Now albums is, is about music discovery, really, isn't it? You didn't buy the Now album because you liked all 38 tracks on it. You probably liked eight. But by playing that CD, as we all used to play those CDs sequentially, we discovered artists that we maybe didn't know about before. Yeah, it was a great way to discover new artists. I mean, some of the songs you knew well and you maybe would want to skip over them. But, yeah, you were put side by side new artists, established artists, just by the sheer virtue that you'd all had hits at the same time. But aren't they a great historical compilation now? I mean, it's just a record of the charts. Except Madonna. Yeah, <laughs> apart from there's only one or two failed to be on it. So lead to that point about uh, compilations and how you compile them. Uh, sequencing an album, I always thought was really important, and I think they mm. did take quite a lot of care. Corin, you'll know this from sequencing your swing out sister albums. The order of the tracks is almost as important as the tracks themselves, yes? Oh, definitely. I mean, you can destroy a track by putting one song in front of it that doesn't run. It's either not enough of a contrast or too similar to the one after. So there must have been a considerable amount of care and attention paid to putting things on there. But, you know, they they were great party albums, weren't they, really? If you didn't know quite who you were playing to. (laughs) I actually, a few years ago, bought one. I got dropped in it somebody had failed to turn up and a friend's 12 year old was celebrating a birthday and they go, can you come and dj i dj but i play old northern soul and funk and yeah. you know and i was going i really have no idea what a 12 year old would like all i knew was her favorite record was uh, Nicki minaj um super bass so i just thought i've got to get now that's what i come and i just played that on rotation i was the most popular person there <laughs> so, <laughs> now saved me so lee as a playlister uh and yeah. somebody who, who works on sequencing of records talk a little about whether you how well sequenced these now albums were was that a crucial part of their success very very important i think the best people to sequence any kind of albums are people that program music for an audience whether that's radio or even a wedding dj for example um, because they know kind of what flows into the next track um there were some fun quirks on some of the earlier ones i remember having a conversation with uh, ashley abraham who used to compile the albums many years ago and he was telling me that um uh, did you ever notice for example i think it's now 12 or now 13 uh, you've got uh, i don't want your love by uh, Transvision Vamp, followed by I Want Your Love by Duran Duran, followed by Love Is All That Matters by Human League. Uh, and that was kind of like a fun sequence. And he also put uh, OMC How Bizarre next to OMD's uh, Pandora's Box, I think, on a later one. So he used to have fun kind of putting those uh, things together and was done very, very much, you know, the first track on the album should be the biggest album 
uh, the biggest song, I should say, of uh, that particular uh, period, that sort of three or four month period, whether it's a song that's been number one for months or whether it's been an airplane number one or whatever it happens to be. And then from there, you then follow the kind of sequence on. So if that was a big ballad, you then have another big ballad to follow it. And you, you sort of rapidly sort of up the tempo as it goes along, um, trying obviously to find the biggest hits. Um, sequencing is hugely important. Do you find that the best playlists on streaming services are the ones that are sequenced brilliantly? And that's what now still is able to do. You know, they, they take great care when they're putting the... Um, actual track listing together and mastering it all um, to make sure, you know, does this song flow into this one? Would that one work better going there rather than this? Uh, and that's kind of the important thing on these albums. You want something that you can put on uh, if you're in a car, for example, and you stick, you know, a disc on for an hour and 10 minutes and it will run without you skipping. That's the idea behind it. And and that, that, that of course, is they want to keep you listening. Corinne, of course. there was a period when Now Albums were so big that they were always number one in the album chart because the chart was a combined chart. Then they split the compilations away. You you got the impression, not from if you've just been from slightly outside the music business as I was, that not everybody in the music business was entirely happy that the now albums was was the biggest selling thing. Do you remember that? I don't really. I mean, we were lucky enough to have a number one album. I don't know if we were our first album. In fact, I don't know if we were knocked off the top by a, a, a now album. But um, I don't know if I really paid that much attention to that. But I think the thing I did notice was um, albums went from only having three tracks, four tracks. Some people only did a couple. I think wasn't there a Miles Davis and a Herbie Hancock? You know, to to ten. That was the kind of average when we made our first album. But then suddenly. Maybe these compilations squeeze so many tracks into one album, it seemed to be like giving too much away too soon. So it made music a little bit more... Commoditized, yeah, maybe. Disposable. Yeah, disposable. Um, what do you think, uh, Peter, about about that the, the resentment in some areas of the music business for compilations doing so well? Because there was a period when artist albums weren't. No, and th- th- there was also a period when singles weren't you know weren't selling at all and that was completely through the floor and i think much as people may have thought you know an hour album or any compilation album isn't a proper album they sort of stopped complaining a bit when the checks started coming in i was talking to somebody who used to uh work at a label during that period of singles not selling anything and they were saying that you know they wanted to get singles as high as they could in the charts not for the glory of being higher in the charts but because it would make it more likely that they would get on a now album if they got on an hour album, that would be guaranteed like forty grand coming in, and that could be enough to stop an act being dropped. You know, to you know, to give them another chance. So that the, the, there was a period. I don't know if it's still the case, but there certainly was a period when you know an hour album could actually keep acts afloat in a very, very tangible sense. That's a really interesting insight into the value of being on an hour album from an artist or a label's point of view. Because you know, if you're selling a million copies of a compilation, there's some royalties to be distributed. Mm. So and the interesting thing about this, Mark, is it's a very good point that Peter's just made. Because uh, if you think about the '90s in particular, you had uh, some weeks you might have the, t- the entire top five that was all new entries. Um, so the um, ability to get on a Now album was much, much harder, I suppose, really, in the 90s because um, you had, you know, uh, 
basically the cutoff point might have been the top 15 record. So if you weren't in the top 15, you had a much you know, lesser chance of potentially being on that album, um, simply because there were more hits around than there are today. I know that on the last few volumes, for example, you know, they, you've had songs that have not made the top 40. You've had songs that have been beyond the chart, um, uh, and they've taken a punt with a few things, and they haven't necessarily kind of hit uh, like they maybe were expecting to. So if you look back at some of the, the, the what I consider the glory kind of sort of now albums in, in the mid nineties, but you know, particularly in the now thirties, etc., um, you'll see that it is just absolutely hit packed because they were drawing ostensibly from either the top 10 or the top 15, maybe for the most part. And there was, there was barely a dud hit uh, a non-hit on there, you see. Well, in a way, it was made easier for the people compiling them because the charts were laid out for them. But now music listening is so diverse. I would imagine it's a really difficult task to try and collate people's general listening habits and combine it into what... It'll be interesting to see where it goes. I, I know the latest now that's what I call music, have Spotify playlists, so they can probably count how many hits they're getting on there. But, you know, or, or maybe that's how they draw mm. their collections together. But how and where do people listening to their music these days? I think people generally are listening to uh, more artists and more songs by more artists, but they're listening to those songs themselves less. So, you know, when at the point when we were growing up and you'd have to go and buy a single, if you'd spent one ninety nine on that single, you were going to end up liking that single. You're going to play it until you like that song. You don't have to do that now because you don't you haven't made any sort of financial or really emotional investment in a song. If you don't like it in the first play or two plays, then on to the next one. And I guess that does have an impact then on what what power a, a now album does and I get you know has on the listener and what emotional impact it will have on the listener and I wonder if in you know 30 years from now there'll be somebody who talking about now 100 in the same way that I talk about now 11 and probably not I guess yeah, I like that. Emotional and financial investment. That's an interesting thing because how do you quantify that stuff? But I think it, records and songs were a lot more precious to us when there were fewer of them. And as they expand, you can say it makes it accessible to all from the artist's point of view and the listener's point of view. But just bringing things... I mean, look at the World Cup, for instance. I don't even particularly like football, but isn't it great to have something that unifies everyone? And these compilations did do that. I don't know how much they are going to do so now. You know, we, we like togetherness, don't we? <laughs> well, it's true that you, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the World Cup and, you know, TV, because TV has the same problem that music has in the, the diversification, you know, all, all the different ways that you can consume visual content, or whatever you want to call it. The, the appointment to view stuff and the communal experience isn't so much there. So people might all watch the latest thing on Netflix or whatever, but they're not all watching it at the same time. No, but you know, but thing. things like but things like Bake Off or you know or things like the World Cup have you know reinvigorated the idea in the last couple of months of, of a communal experience. Yeah, event event television or event music, and yeah. that brings me back to the, the the question about you know the emotional and the financial investment in music that's gone to live now, hasn't it? And the, you know, people if they do want to if they do want to spend money on a on a li on a music experience, they're going to buy a concert ticket. Yeah, experience is is the word, yeah. isn't it? You're, you feel that you're experiencing something. Uh, let's just before we conclude, hear from somebody else who is on the very first Now album and is still around. It's Ali Campbell. Who would have known that we'd be on a hundred? You know, I mean, it's just remarkable, isn't it? I can remember them for, you know, coming and asking us if we could put red red wine on, and we were going, yeah, sure, you know. And then now it's on a hundred. It makes me feel very old. We were on a lot of compilation albums, especially in the early 80s, you know, 
because we had in the 80s and 90s 40 top 20 hits you know so we've come a long way in the music business since we all started loving music uh, for a while it looked like the music business was really in a difficult place but there's a massive turnaround all the labels are making vast amounts of money from streaming what does that mean for now that's what i call music to conclude lee what do you think is there a future in it do we get to now 200 or should we set our sights a little lower maybe now 150 <laughs> 150 seems like a decent enough target. I mean, that'd be what, uh, so that's 20, what, 18 years from now, something like that. Um, yeah, I think um, now 200, who knows? I mean, obviously the, the same people won't be compiling it anymore. They'd have handed over the baton to somebody else younger. Um, who knows what people's tastes and, you know, uh, consumption will be like in even kind of five years' time. Um, we thought that downloads were the, um, were the future and everyone would be, you know, owning downloads forever. And then suddenly they've fallen out of favour and streaming's come along. What comes next after streaming? That's the big question. Um, but I suspect that now we'll outlive it, whatever it is that comes next. Peter? I mean, if it gets to now 200, I'm just interested in hearing who's doing the voiceover on Not the TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Corin. Well, I'd be interested if it gets to now 200, how we would actually be listening to it, because who would have foreseen the return of vinyl? And that could be a, a big player in these compilations to actually have the vinyl. Co- I don't know if 100's out on vinyl, but, you know. It's not. It, it should be. Well, it's not out on cassette either, or minidisc, <laughs> or 8-track. <laughs> the some, phonograph some might make a return. Getting, some things are getting left in history. I think one thing we can say is we're not going to fall out of love with music. It's just how we consume it. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think now's got a little way to go just yet. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Lee Thompson, all the way from Amsterdam, Corinne Drury oh, from you. Swing Out Sister, <laughs> thank you. and Peter Robinson from Pop Justice. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this podcast, check out our other edition featuring Ben Earl from the Shires, Carol Decker of Depau, Radio One's Scott Mills, and journalist Anna Leskovich on Now That's What I Call a Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.